0: We will now uh, take our attention to Daniel chapter 9. Don't know if we'll get through all of Daniel 9. Um, don't know if I want to get into some of the specific details of Daniel 9. If I don't, uh, I may cover it next week. Next week, uh, we will do, I'm going to attempt to do the period of the biblical years of quote, silence. Um Everybody has their opinion on what that means. <laughs> but I'm, I'm going to try to do a little history lesson of what all happened during this period that we've been talking about where God has let Daniel know that there's a number of things that are going to happen between the time that um, you leave this earth and the time that Christ comes and establishes his kingdom. And we've talked about a number of those with the third and fourth kingdoms that will arise. Um, So I want to try to do a little bit of detail of that, especially since Jason let me know I have one more class, Uh, the 4th of January, 3rd of of January, 4th of January, one of those two. Um, So we will do that. And then the very last class will be uh, the chapters 10, 11, and 12, which is one big long vision And I would like for you to make sure prior to those, two weeks from now, that you read those in its entirety. Um, Chapter 10 is kind of an introduction to 11. The main portion of things that happen in that three-chapter series is really in chapter 11. And then chapter 12 kind of closes it all out. So uh, if you'll read 10, 11, and 12 over the next two weeks, that'll help you prepare for our final class. And with that, we'll jump into chapter 9. When the the Medes and the Persians gained control of the city of Babylon, it obviously, for those who knew about God's word through the prophet Jeremiah, would have been a time of excitement and maybe some expectation. Daniel was a man of prayer, but he was also a person who studied the word of God. And as we learn here in chapter 9, one of the things he had access to was the books of Jeremiah. And in that studying, he came to the earnest expectation that God would soon fulfill his promise um, to his unworthy nation of allowing them to return back home. And when you put all that together, Daniel's getting pretty old in age. It's not too much longer in this context that the 70 years that we're referring to of the time that they are in captivity is coming upon its completion. And so tonight we have an instance of Daniel praying to God. Praying for that to take place, and then God will answer that prayer in a way that real quickly tells him, Yeah, you got it right. 70 years are soon going to lapse. Then I've got something new for you. I've got some information that you weren't expecting about your city, Jerusalem, and it has to do with another 70-week prophecy in verses 24 through 27, which in many ways is, um, some people think it's the heart of the chapter, but I'll be honest with you, I think the heart of the chapter is the first first 19 verses, because in that, we see what a true follower of God is in terms of Someone who has a dedicated prayer life, and and honestly, that's probably where we're going to spend most of our time tonight. So, chapter nine contains twenty-seven verses, and um, I don't have a lot of slides tonight. That's what we're covering. It contains twenty-seven verses. The first nineteen record a prayer of Daniel on behalf of the covenant people of God, and then the remaining eight verses talk about the Lord's response to that prayer and, as we mentioned, tells Daniel some things that he didn't ask about and probably he didn't want to know, but God revealed them to him. And through him revealed it to us and to everyone else who's now reading the book of Daniel. And it is one, it's a particular emphasis that just as a point of context, I guess if you were looking at the the Hebrew portion of the uh, book of Daniel, In this particular chapter, the word Yahweh is used seven times where it's not even mentioned in the other chapters, and it makes sense because of the petition that is being made to God. But in the first 19 verses, Daniel repents for himself and for his people. Uh, Someone once said that what a man is in secret on his knees before God, that he is that and no more. And we've seen in the book of Daniel his daily devotion to prayer. He was a man of habitual and fervent prayer to God. And not only was he a man of prayer, but he was a man who obviously took advantage of the written word of God that was in existence even in the period of the exile. The religious scrolls which recorded the words of the prophets had become not only an important part of the spiritual life of the people in exile but they also became a significant influence upon Daniel himself. And it was these books that helped them keep a lot of their traditions of worship alive and to be as faithful as they could, even though they had no temple of which to follow a lot of the daily sacrifices. And it seems that their inspiration came from reading, studying, and interpreting all of the holy scriptures. You'll recall that Ezekiel, was taken in the second wave of captivity. And and in Ezekiel, we get a glimpse of how life was going on in captivity outside of where Daniel was. And it seems these exiles attempted to carry on their system of internal government through a unique system of elders in these villages where exiled priests would often also help assist in religious activities that that were taking place despite the circumstances that they were facing. You can look at ezekiel chapter 8 verse 1 and chapter 14 verse 1 to get some kind of indication of how life was going along with them and the other captives they often gathered in places by the river or by the water they often gathered in their own houses and it's that kind of gathering for worship and for study that eventually led to the concept of the synagogues which then caught on which we read about all the time In the New Testament, we think that that's just every, that's been the existence of the entire Israelite nation. That's certainly not the case. It really transpired and came about during this period of exile. There's a quick introduction and the context is given in verses one and two of Daniel chapter nine. Verse one gives us the context of the timing of this particular prayer of Daniel and of the answer that was given to him. And it says that all this, took place in the first year of Darius, Darius the Mead. Now, who was that Darius the Mead guy? Remember, he came up in chapter 6. He was the one that by trickery and also by his own persuading him through his own um, humanity and giving in to big things, he's the one that also threw Daniel in the lion's den. But it's now we're back into that particular time frame. So we're talking about either 539 to 538 B.C., and it's a, this is about 12 years after the second vision of Daniel that's recorded in chapter 8. So what we studied last week, fast forward 12 years, and now we have the third vision recorded. If you assume Daniel was about 15 years of age, he's now close to 80 years old or maybe even older at the time. I remember when Darius assumed authority in that city. We talked about that when we were talking about Daniel loves him. I mean, all the pictures when you're a kid is Daniel looks like he's about 23 years old with muscles pounding out. But he was an elderly man. He was on up there. And in verse 2, we see that Daniel was in study in the words of the prophet Jeremiah. And it says that he learned by the books the number of the years that the word of the Lord would accomplish regarding the desolation of Jerusalem. And that would be 70 years, and he's thinking in his own head, 70 years, hmm, i am in here almost 70 years. When is this going to come about? And what do I need to be doing about that? And the answer that he found that he needs to be doing about something is praying. And, he, and we're going to figure out why he did that in just a few minutes. By the way, the word for the word desolation here is frequently used to simply describe a devastated land after an army came through it and performed all of their destructive work. So that's what we're talking about. Jerusalem, once this beautiful metropolis city, was now in ruins. It was lying in ruins, and it would lie in ruins until the full measure of God's wrath was fulfilled. And when that was complete, the people will once again return to their homeland, would rebuild their city. For future generations to enjoy, but for how long would they enjoy it? Well, maybe Daniel was thinking it would be forever, but he's going to get another answer tonight. Not as long as he would like, and he'll learn about that in his prayer. But during this, the people would be, How long, O Lord? How long is all this going to last? And it is Jeremiah that answers. That for us. I actually want us to go look at Jeremiah. We're going to look at some things in the past um, to help us really get a snapshot of what has been happening. Jeremiah chapter 25, 8 through 14. Therefore, says the Lord of hosts, because you have not heard my words, behold, I will sin and take all the families of the north, says the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And will bring them against this land, its inhabitants, and against those nations all around, and will utterly destroy them, and make them as astonishment, a hissing, and perpetual desolations. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of mirth, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the bride, and the sound of millstones, and the light of the lamp, and this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years. Then it will come to pass, when seventy years are completed, that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, says the Lord, and I will make it a perpetual desolation. So I will bring on that land all my words which I have pronounced against it, all that is written in this book which Jeremiah's prophesied concerning all the nations. For many nations the great kings shall be served by them also, and I will pay them according to the deeds and according to the works Of their own system. So verses 11 and 12 specifically mention the 70 years that the land would lie desolate. Now I want you to turn over to 2 Chronicles chapter 36. 2 Chronicles chapter 36. We're gonna do another long reading. Beginning of verse 11 Zedekiah chapter 36 was 21 when he became king, he reigned 11 years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord his God and did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. That's key. And he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear an oath by God, but he stiffened his neck, hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. Moreover, all the leaders of the priest and the people transgressed more and more according to all the abominations of the nations and defiled the house of the Lord, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, rising up early and sending them because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people till there was no remedy. And therefore he brought against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young men or virgin, on the aged or the weak. He gave them all into his hands and all the articles from the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of his leaders. All these he took to Babylon, and they burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all its palaces with fire, destroyed all its possessions, and those whose escape from the sword he carried away to Babylon where they became servants to his until his sons and his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. Where's Darius from? Persia. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jehovah until the land had enjoy her Sabbaths as long as she lay desolate, she keeps Sabbath to fulfill seventy. Years. Verse 20 and following, the writer saw the 70 year period as the period that was needed to complete this desolation of Jerusalem. So God was punished him just as he said he would because they departed from him. And because they did, he did exactly what he says. So now we get in, and we have one more reference we'll get into in just a minute. But now let's flip back over to Daniel, chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 3 through 19. This gets into the prayer, as we've said up here, the prayer of Daniel. Now that he understood the implications of Jeremiah's pronouncements, Daniel then turned to God in prayer. He recognized that his people as a religious community had no status in the eyes of God in terms of having any favor at all. Given their history of unfaithfulness to him, um, they were in a predicament. And he was well aware, though, of God's history of mercy and forgiveness despite their waywardness that they would show from time to time. So that's why he approach the Lord about the status of his country and when they would be allowed to go back. Now, we might ask, why is Daniel praying to God about this? Well, now we're going to go look at one more reference. Leviticus chapter 26. Why not you go with, go with me to Leviticus chapter 26. If you recall, Leviticus 26, God lays out the blessings and the curses to his people. Uh, In the first 13 verses, if you follow me, you will be blessed in the following ways. If you do not follow my commands, verses 14 through 39, twice the number that was in 1 through 13, this is what will happen to you if you choose not to walk in God's ways. Take a look at specifically what it says in verse 30 through 35. I'll destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars, Cast your carcasses on the lifeless form of your idols, and my soul shall abhor you. I will lay your cities waste and bring your sanctuaries to desolation, and I will not smell the fragrance of your sweet aromas. I will bring the land to desolation. Your enemies will dwell in it, shall be astonished at it. That's going to come up a little bit later tonight. I will And why is that astonishing? We'll talk about that. I will scatter you among the nations and draw out a sword after you and your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. The land shall enjoy its Sabbath as long as it lies desolate and you are enemies, and you are in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbath. As long as it lies desolate, it shall rest. For the time it did not rest on your Sabbaths, you shall dwell in it. All right. After reading that, we now come to verse forty. I want you to come on down to verse forty. So he goes through and he says all these blessings, blessings and curses. This curse is going to happen, but then he says in verse forty, "But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers, with their unfaithfulness of which they were unfaithful to me, and that they have also walked contrary to me, and that I have also walked contrary to them, and have brought them into the land of their enemies." If their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, my covenant with Isaac, my covenant with Abraham, I will remember, and I will remember the land. So, what's got to take place? They have to confess their sins. And it seems that Daniel is now taken on this role. Daniel has assumed this responsibility to confess their iniquities and the iniquities of their fathers. And that is exactly what we have in chapter 9 of Daniel. The confession, as we see there, the prayer of Daniel, verses 5 through 14. The confession to God of just how wicked they had been. And then he's going to ask God a petition in verses 15 through 19. And you know what that's going to be. And we'll get there in a second. So, the sincerity of Daniel's prayer and its earnestness is made evident by the language that is used here in verse 3. He turned his entire concentration, not on himself, but upon God. And he seeks the Lord's attention and the Lord's favor. It is interesting that the word prayer here in verse 3 is derived from a root word which means to intercede for or mediate for. And the term which is translated supplication is derived from a word that symbolizes the offering of a supplication for favor of God. So we see here that he is interceding on behalf behalf of Israel, and then he's making a petition, a supplication for favor of God to do something. And we'll read about that a little later. And then we get into verses 4 through 19. Um, and I think we could break down the prayer of Daniel into three separate parts. Verse 4 is the adoration. Verses 5 through 14 is the confession. Verses 15 through 19 is the petition. And if we look at this very carefully... This particular prayer would really offer a good model even for us to follow today. It has a brief introduction directing our thoughts to God. It then proceeds to express adoration and praise to God. It's then followed by a frank discussion and confession of my sins, Daniel says, and of the sins of the nation. And once that has transpired, He then concludes it by the petition that he makes of God and the request that he makes of God. It is interesting that it's only after he's formally addressed and appropriately praised God and made confession that he then asked his petition of God. And I won't mention some names, but there are some names of some brethren that I know that I remember Well, I'll just say it. I remember Brother Paul Hutchison almost following this, it seems like, to the letter. I'll never forget his prayers growing up as a young man, where he would come before God and the first thing that he would do is he would ask, in the name of Jesus Christ, we come before you, confessing our sins. Some of his grandsons follow that too. (laughs) And it was just a great lesson to learn but it's something that expresses adoration to God. It puts you in the right process, the right moment to be able to truly express how you fear God, respect God, and all that you have for him. So it's not a bad model to follow whatsoever. But then in verse 4, he begins that he prayed unto the Lord my God. Even though, remember, he was surrounded by a monolistic, well, not monolistic, polyistic, a society that believed in every kind of God in the world, Daniel never deviated from following his God, the God of the Hebrews. He referred to the Lord as the great and dreadful God. It's clear that he viewed the Lord as one who's to be feared and respected and given Israel's past experiences with him, it's obviously the, the right attitude that Daniel has toward God and making sure he is very reverent In his presence, but he also praises God for His ability to keep the covenants and to grant mercy to people who do not deserve mercy. And he's going to rely upon that in this chapter. And then we get specifically into the confession of verses five through fourteen. And verse five really does begin this formal confession on the behalf of his nation. In this one verse alone, there are five separate ways. That, are, that characterized the treachery against the Lord and his covenant that these people had made against God. Number one, he says, we have sinned. We have missed the holy mark. Number two, we have committed iniquity, which is simply wrongdoing. Their sins made them perverse before God and before man. And Daniel recognized this truth and admitted it before the throne of the Almighty. He then says in verse 5, and I need to get back over to Daniel. He then says in verse 5, we have done wickedly. In other words, they were wicked, they were evil, they were wrong in their behavior. And this wickedness is a state of being that is indicative of an inner yearning and desire that leads one away from goodness and righteousness. In other words, it went to the heart of the matter. It was their heart. It was their mind that was wicked. They had no, they had no uh, feeling toward wanting to worship God. We just read all those passages before. Even their leaders were so far away from worshiping God that God had no, had no sympathy for them. He says, we have rebelled. And in a context like we're talking here, this rebellion describes a human tendency to revolt against God's authority and pursue one's own ways despite what God says. And the concept of rebellion against God as Lord and King is a particularly dreadful religious act for the word itself seems here to imply a conscience decision, a conscience decision to reject the will of one's maker and ultimate sovereign. Now that's getting bold. When you consciously decide it says, I don't want you, I know better than you. You have nothing to do in my life. And that's exactly what they did. That's what these words mean. And finally, he says, we have departed from your precepts and from your judgment. Israel had rebelled. They had turned aside. They had refused to obey the God in the sense that they had not given heed to his commandments and ordinances given through Moses and confirmed by the prophets. Remember, God said, I sent Time and time and time, people to you to try to convince you to turn from your ways. And you didn't turn, not one iota. While verse five underscored the place of the law of Moses in their lives and the fact that the people had refused to hear the law and to keep it, in verse six, Daniel deals with the fact that the prophets had also spoken the truth set forth in the law. And yet Israel still refused them. Who refused the prophets? He noted, your kings, your princes, your fathers. And finally he says, all the people of the land. In other words, everyone was guilty in a global sense of not hearkening to the words of the prophets. Now, were there exceptions to the rule? Absolutely. There were definitely exceptions to the rule. Daniel being one of them, okay. And we t- we talked about that in the earlier part of Daniel. So when we move on to verses nine or seven through nine, we have a theme presented in these three verses: to God belongs righteousness, mercies, and forgiveness, but to us, no, none of that. What belongs to us is confusion of faces, trespasses and rebellion against God. It's not a pretty picture. Not a pretty picture whatsoever of God's chosen people rebelling against him, trespassing. The nation of Israel at this point in time had been utterly broken. Its armies had been decimated. All of his institutions had disappeared. All of their property and their land had been confiscated. The government no longer functioned. Since the king and princesses were in the custody of the Babylonian state, their future was decided by others who simply used them as tools. But in the end, it is God who is wronged, not Israel. There's no sympathy for Israel. Israel chose its path. Even though she suffered greatly, her punishments were entirely just in light of the crimes that she committed against God. And Daniel, in this prayer, makes no excuse for this nation. He makes no explanations. He only lays the fault of their current situation at the doorstep of the present generation and of the fathers that have preceded them. God, on the other hand, deserves praise since he kept his part of the bargain faithfully just like he said he would In other words, God said this, Leviticus chapter 26 and others, and then God did exactly what he said he was going to do, as the covenant said. In verses 10 through 11, as we move on down, uh, you might think that up to now, maybe it's time to end the confession. No. In 10 and 11, he doubles down (laughs) on the confession. He's not through confessing the sins of the people. Daniel says, Israel is in no circumstances for her to mend the broken fences that she had destroyed with God on account of her refusal to obey the voice of the Lord. God, in this instance, could not go back on his word. Remember that. He could not have ignored his own oath, which he had so plainly pronounced upon them as apostates from the law of Moses. All of these admissions of guilt do not prove anyway that Israel deserves mercy and forgiveness, but rather, and this is the key, it is necessary for God to extend mercy and forgiveness or else His people will be utterly lost. They have nothing to plead with. Their lives are hopeless. They had no ground to stand before God. And it is interesting that Israel's predicament is exactly The perfect analogy for the human race today. The human race stands before God just as hopeless, just as helpless in her lost condition, and utterly dependent upon God's grace and mercy, just like Israel was. Everybody in the world is without hope until Jesus Christ paid the ransom for sins of this lost and dying world. Daniel then goes on to say in verse 12, That God have confirmed his words. That is to say, he carried out on his threats. It wasn't an idle threat. I'm going to warn you once. I'm going to warn you twice. I'm going to warn you three times. We sometimes hear parents tell kids. And then it goes on four, five, and six. God said, this is going to happen, and that's exactly what it did. It seems as if Israel listened respectfully when the command was given. But then they went on their little merry way and acted as if they had not heard it whatsoever. And in the end, they did as they pleased, ignoring the warning, and guess what? God said it's time to carry out my warning, and the results were absolutely catastrophic. At the end of verse 12, he says this great evil happened to Israel, and it says it had never been done before. Well, the unique aspect of this whole matter had to do with Israel's special relationship to God. Other nations had experienced being taken over. Other nations have been taken captive. Even during the Babylonian captivity, nations were consumed and then captives were brought to Babylon to be trained, as we, we read in the first chapter. But in all those instances, their gods were only figments of their imagination and other superstitions. It is Israel and Israel alone that worshiped the true God and the fact that it happened to them... Is what makes it the abomination that it is. They serve the true and living God, and the others didn't. And then in verse 13 and 14, if you read these verses carefully, you'll see that Daniel's chief concern is the integrity of God himself. He recognizes the fact that it was their colossal guilt before him, and he understands that it is impossible for them to escape the inevitable consequences of their sins. The removal of them from their nation was not some little game that God was playing. God had warned them, God had given them specific warning, and he carried out his warnings just as he said he would. As Daniel put it, as it is written in the law of Moses, all this evil has come upon us. God carefully planned it all. He diligently oversaw the whole terrible process. And he allowed Nebuchadnezzar to launch his assault upon Judah. And you see the results. But above all, Daniel is very careful in these, these two particular verses to protect God's integrity in the face of all the suffering that they had experienced. They suffered because they rejected God and deserved to suffer. The Lord was only carrying out his word because God is righteous in all his works that he does and we have not obeyed his voice. And so that concludes the section of the confession to God. And then in the next five verses, we see the petition that he will make to the Lord. Beginning in verses 15 and 16, Daniel makes his case before the Lord and he calls upon God's great power to deliver his people just as he delivered them from the nation of Egypt. He goes all the way back to the lesson that he learned as a young man about God delivering Egypt, uh, Israel, out of the mighty hand of Egypt. Jehovah had shown himself <clears throat> to be a faithful God, fully capable of liberating a chosen nation from the powerful hands of the Egyptians. And since he had demonstrated, and this is the key, since he had demonstrated it before, Daniel is anxious to remind him that his great works of deliverance have not been forgotten. There are still those who believe you have the power to deliver us today, just as you did in Egypt. And even though all that is true, guess what he still does? He doesn't move on to the petition. He quickly returns back to his own recognition of his people's change status, and he confesses again the guilt of the people. We've sinned. We've done wickedly. He admits that his people are in no position to demand deliverance. They can only beg for it based upon the Lord's consistent record of forgiveness and mercy toward his wayward children which is characterized as God's righteousness in these particular verses. And in verse 16 in particular, we see the essence of Daniel's prayer expressed. Let thy anger and thy fury be turned away from thy city, Jerusalem, the holy mountain. He begs God to let his anger and his fury see therein and permit their years of punishment to come to and in, and then we get to verses 17 through 19. And these verses teach us a lot about prayer and how we need to approach God in prayer as well. 17 through 19. Therefore, O Lord, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications. And for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate, O my God, incline your ear and open, and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive O oh Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. As Daniel was praying that the Lord would forgive him and his people and provide them with some assurance, one of the matters that greatly concerned him was the problem of the interrupted offerings of sacrifices at the sanctuary of Jehovah in Jerusalem. It is throughout the centuries that Israel had followed, remember, the daily regimens of sacrifices as discussed in the law of Moses. The only way for an individual the nation that could receive divine forgiveness would be to offer the correct sacrifice at the temple. But now Daniel is in a foreign land. A sacrifice cannot be offered at the temple. How is God going to possibly forgive their transgressions and restore this nation to favor when their sacrificial offerings had ceased in the temple and the temple lay in ruins? How are they going to solve the problem? All that Daniel could do was plead for forgiveness and ask the Lord to look favorably upon the place where sin had been forgiven so long ago, hear the prayer of thy servant, and for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. One of the things that sticks out in this prayer is this sincerity that is offered. One man has observed that our age has become to believe that real familiarity with God is best expressed in a casual approach or in a language that expresses how easily and informally we have entered God's presence. He goes on to point, even the most cursory reading of this chapter should awaken us from such such deception. The sad truth is that we do not pray like Daniel because we cannot pray like him. If we could, we would know God as he is and live as he lived to the glory of God. And what that says is Daniel was devoted to God, he recognized the fear of God, he had respect for God, and then that was shown in his life, and that was shown in his prayer life. Daniel's prayer is from the heart of one who was wholly devoted to God. And because of that, he appeals for mercy for the people, because they bear God's name. Verse 17, he requests the restoration of the city of Jerusalem because it is God's own city. He longs for the rebuilding of the temple because it is God's own sanctuary. Verse 17, in every sense, his prayer magnifies God and it humbles himself. God is magnified. Daniel is humbled. It's full of adoration and full of admiration. Well, now we find ourselves in the closing verses of chapter 9, verses 20 through 27. And I'm not going to get, I'm not going to finish this one. Uh, I'll probably just pick this up next week. But in verses 20 through 23, he discusses Gabriel being sent to Daniel to inform him and talk with him. In particular, it says in verse 22 that he intends to give Daniel skill to understand what he's going to impart to him. And he's told that he is greatly loved by God. Wow. Can you imagine an angel appearing to you and said, your name, you're greatly beloved by God. Oh, we all know that God loves us. But here it's called out specifically by Daniel. God loves him. God loves his faith. And he calls that out. So it appears in this case that he was selected to be the one who would then reveal these mysteries that are going to be revealed to him, to the future of God's people, including Israel, and even including us who are reading it today. Uh, I'm going to stop right there. We'll finish verses 20 through 27, and then we will get into the... um, 400 years between revealed prophets (laughs) and John the Baptist. How's that?